Hey guys, welcome back. It's Chris Bircher. This is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom, and this is episode 117. Let's talk about sex. That's probably not going to be the type of show that you anticipate if you're just coming to this. Uh, What I really want to talk about today is, in evolutionary terms and biological terms, the arrival, onset, and uh, literal sort of taking over of sexual reproduction as a mechanism of perpetuating DNA. Now, this episode probably isn't going to be as exciting as you might hope it would be, but since we're talking about sex, what we're really talking about is the biological significance of sex, the evolutionary significance of sex. And really, as part of the acid test, looking at nature to sort of tell us about how we're doing. And again, what has succeeded in nature in a Darwinian evolutionary sense? What we see in the world today that is alive uh, and, you know, in, in any significant number or any, any lineage of success, species that have been around a long time, behavior traits, adaptations, characteristics, arm length, eye color, all of these things we can sort of we can, we, can, we can put through a filter and say, well, these are either here just by random chance or these traits, f- things, exist in the world because they were selected for by nature as being fit in whatever environment they're in. And that is sort of the, the, the model of success. You know, it's not how wealthy and how powerful and how much status an individual of a species has. It's how well their physical and genotypic traits succeed at reproduction and the perpetuation of that species through time. And you got to remember, I'm coming at this from a what I consider to be a reasonable assumption about nature is that part of what makes life unique in an ironic and yin and yang kind of way is that it ends. And so life is temporary. But the driver of life, a main driver, a main tool, a main feature of being alive, DNA, is actually immortal, right? So you can almost look at biological organisms as vehicles for the DNA. I mean, if it wasn't, if you know, you could almost consider DNA to be like an alien, right? DNA figured out it can't live forever. It's almost like a virus, right? It doesn't have enough of whatever to be alive, but if it, if it, rides along in this you know mass of cells then it can achieve immortality by being passed from an individual to another and so time you know is it becomes continuous there's a, a massive science fiction story in there and s- several subsets of it have been done in the past but as an ecologist that was my conclusion like oh i see how this works the greatest travesty of life is that it ends but there's a workaround. There's a loophole, uh, you know, to to this, and that is actually DNA. Or looking at it from the other way, the whole purpose of life is to perpetuate DNA. And the cool thing about DNA is it sort of recognizes, and maybe the whole reason behind all of this is that the world, the universe, changes constantly. Probably tenant number one, everything changes, and so anything that you. I hate to use the word design, but anything that sort of is going to be successful in a changing environment must have some mechanism to account for that change. That is DNA. Life has DNA. You know, there's not going to be just red pandas, right? Red pandas carry along with them the machinery necessary to respond to, oh, 
the environment's gotten warmer because the climate's gotten warmer because the earth has gotten warmer because, you know, I don't know, the, the sun is closer to the earth than it used to be or, or for whatever reason. In order to be successful, biology can't stay the same. And it can't live forever because of whatever reason. You know, I don't know who made up that rule. Maybe that would have been an easier rule. But I actually don't think that would have been an easier rule because if life lived forever, then it, 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 it can't change, at least in the way that we know it. Given the machinery that we have that has evolved, that has been selected for, an individual doesn't really change that well. Although with the onset of epigenetics, we do understand that we have a little bit more control over our genes as individuals. And so two things to think about here. One is the genotype, and that is the code that you have in your DNA that gives you the capacity to to be whatever you are by various things like sexual reproduction. And then your phenotype, which is the way that those genes are expressed physically. You know, not all genes are expressed in a physical sense, like blue eyes or height or muscle build or speed. Um, Some things are only genotypic, uh, like maybe something, I can't think of an example right now the propensity to get some disease or um, to be susceptible to this or that uh, might just be genotypic. So we have to consider both of these things. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all of it. And so that's the baseline in the first five minutes. This is obviously going to be multiple episodes, but that's, it's fun to talk about sex. So when life first evolved, uh, there was no sex, all organisms, there was no gender, Right? There was no dimorphism. There was no male-female. There was no continuum between those two. It was just one thing. All individuals were essentially clones. Now, there might have been multiple species, especially of, of things like bacteria, you know, tons of different kinds of bacteria that all had different characteristics and did different things and maybe ate different things and produced different you know, molecular conversions or had used different things as energy or whatever. There was you know, diversity happened, um, but it only happened through cell division. So reproduction was essentially cell division. Mitosis is amazing, right? I mean, I'm not dogging. I'm not saying sex is better than mitosis, but mitosis is just cell division. There is very little room for change because essentially cell division evolved, was designed, happened, however you want to look at it, to make new cells, right? And mass, massively successful way to uh, perpetuate life. If the cell's going to die, it's been around for three days, cells live for four days. Well, on day three and a half, I'm just going to divide and produce new cells. And now that cell will live for three days. So on day four, first cell dies, second, the cell's got three more days to live and so on and so on and so on. Especially when you look at things like uh, exponential um, uh, increasing, um, exponential growth. One cell becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, eight becomes and so on, 64. You know, there's always twice as many. So it's a it's an awesome process. And it's also, um, again, super conservative in that the attempt, and I would almost say intent, but I mean intent of whom, uh, is that you're going to produce an exact replica of yourself because you know, hey, this worked. It's alive. It's alive and doing well enough, presumably, to reproduce. Um, so one goal is like be alive. Okay. Second goal is reproduce yourself. If you're successful at doing that, you must have been pretty good at it. It must have been an appropriate thing, so let's make more of you. And so on and so on and so on. And and sure, when life is new, that makes sense, right? You're sort of um, reproducing to utilize the sun's energy and do all the things that you do. I I, I don't want to go into why and how. I I don't know. But that happened. We know that happened. We know it still happens. That's that's the way some organisms, some life still reproduces like that. And and so what's interesting about that is two things. One, you're basically making clones, exact copies of yourself. 
And two, the only opportunity for something besides an exact copy of yourself is an error or just random chance. Because as those, you know, the copying mechanisms, basically in cell division, you also have to copy the DNA, right? So you pull a strand of DNA apart, RNA comes in, it lines up against that one strand of DNA and just makes an exact copy, peels back off. And then that uses as a template for other nitrogenous bases to land on. And then you made a second copy and now you've got two copies of the DNA, chromosomes, all that stuff. If an error happens in those millions of base pairs or hundreds of thousands of base pairs or thousands of base pairs, you're going to have something different. Now you've got a new genotype. And it may be significant. It may be something like um, now you've got more flagella, which allows you to move farther through the primordial soup than you normally could and get to some new area that your predecessors couldn't. Uh, it could be something benign. Uh, it could be something lethal, but detrimental. Uh, problem. And in fact, most of the random mutations, as they're called, would end up being lethal and that organism would not survive to reproduce and it just wouldn't get passed on. All this to combine to say that early life really didn't want to change uh, for whatever reason. It didn't see the need. It wasn't, uh, you know, I like to think of, you know, the earth as being this depauperate, you know, easily accessible resource and life just needing to fill it, right? And and until it filled it, there was no need for anything, you know, change to happen because there's so so much available, right? It would be like if, you know, uh two people landed on the entire continent of North America. It's like, well, there's plenty here for us. Let's just make more of us. Right. And then as it gets more and more crowded, you're sort of like, ah, geez, maybe we need to move north and maybe we need more body hair to do that or whatever. It just makes kind of makes sense. Um, and so for however many billions of years, that's how reproduction happened. And every very rarely, that was the point I missed making a second ago, did any new species come out. And, you know, that's what sort of what happened, right? Is you'd have one species and it produced 50 billion, you know, clones of itself through cell division. One of those was a little bit different and it was successful and it lived to reproduce. And now it's passing on its errors and then with enough time and enough separation, those could actually be considered new species, even though the whole idea of species is a human-created construct. The animals don't care. But the key point is <laughs> the definition of a species really only pertains to uh, sexually reproducing organisms because the concept basically says if two organisms can't reproduce each other and make viable offspring, then they're separate species. <laughs> so, you know, before sex happened... There was no species <laughs> before humans, certainly. Anyway, and so as you can, as you as the Earth fills, right, as more and more of you crowd out the world, what happens with asexual reproduction or perpetuation of an organism through mitosis only? You know, cell division as your reproductive mechanism, asexual reproduction—that's what it is. Uh, you start to make competitors, right? Imagine. Imagine you're you know, a tree and you're dropping acorns, I don't know, right on the ground around you and you've got all kinds of other trees growing up. Well, now all those trees are sucking the nutrients and water out of the soil that you need. That's not a good idea. Is that really what you want? You've created a bunch of competitors and they're younger and more viable and growing more fast. And so they could actually kill you. And so this was a problem, became a problem over millions or billions of years even 
as crowding and guess what? But the, the dreaded C word, competition. Now you're competing with your offspring for resources that might keep you alive. And you know, certainly evolution was occurring and uh, single cell organisms need stuff, right? They need light and nutrients, water. And, uh, you know, as those resources become limiting, you sort of shot yourself in the proverbial foot. Your mechanism of perpetuating your life that has worked for so long is now starting to have negative feedback. And I'm guessing something like that is what led to the evolution of um, sexual reproduction. And I don't really know. I can't say. Nobody knows. It's fun to talk about. That's why I want to talk about it. And given that I'm already 13 minutes in, I'm going to guess this is... um, going to be sort of an introduction to sexual reproduction that I'll continue the evolutionary um, consequences and, and, and all the fun stuff in the next episode, episode 118. But let's just get to sexual reproduction. So what happened? Well, now, I, you know, again, causes, reasons, I don't know. Um, competition being the most sensible one, resources become limiting, and things just starting to randomly change, right? And so what happened is now, instead of mitosis making new individuals, somehow mitosis started pausing in the middle where the DNA, where the genetic material was halved, where it would normally then get copied and go back to the normal number. So they, we call this haploid and diploid, right? So there's two strands of DNA, it splits apart and becomes two single strands of DNA. And then what would happen in mitosis or asexual reproduction is they would just get copied and become new individuals. But now what happens is they don't get copied and they become gametes. And this is where meiosis gets super cool. Uh, you would make a sperm or a pollen and an egg or ova, whether it's you know plant or animal. And then those cells would then become independent and serve a new function. And who knows how this happened gradually through time, instantaneous. I, I, I don't know. And I don't really care. It's really the, uh, the evolutionary significance of this that I find fascinating. And so any errors that might occur, everything is the same so far. You may create a sperm that's just a little bit different than half of its dad. And you may create an egg that's just a little bit different than half of its mom, but probably not that different. And then what happens is those two gametes have to meet fuse and become a zygote. And that's where sort of the magic happens because now you've got to sort of lay those two separate pieces of DNA together. And during this process, there's a, and I don't remember the details, look it up in a biology book. I don't care anymore. Um, where this, this phenomenon called crossing over occurs. And so information can actually be swapped during the copying process. And the key point here is that it's a second opportunity for variation. So as genetic material is literally swapped on these chromosomes, they or these these yeah these chromosomes, they become different. Long story short, sexual reproduction leads to a whole lot more variability. It is the opposite of cloning. It's almost like the intent of it is to induce variation. And I say that because it's so different. So there's two opportunities in, in the biology of sexual reproduction the formation of the zygote and then the recombination of the two uh, or the 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 formation of the gametes the sperm or the egg and then the uh, um, unification uh, and the fusing uh, of those two things two opportunities for variation to occur and so what you end up with is an individual that resembles both its mom and its dad and also has 
you know, sort of in, intentional induced variation that's going to make it different. That's a massive shift from let's make a bunch of clones to let's make a bunch of things that aren't clones. What that suggests to me, if you had to sort of Sherlock Holmes, Enola Holmes it, is go, well, we must have, the world must have changed. The universe must have changed. We must have shifted from a very stable, predictable, non-competitive, resource-rich situation to one that was more competitive, less resource-rich, more limiting, more variable and changing than the first one. And that's not that hard for me to make sense of. I don't really need to go any further than that to please myself because it makes total sense that that's what would happen. And then, of course, what happened is sexual reproduction became the way of the rest of biological evolution. You know, we, we, we don't see primates <laughs> that reproduce asexually. We don't see, I mean, it happens in fish uh, and it happens in insects, but that's about as sort of derived as we get. And just a quick tangent here, I don't like to use the words primitive and uh, um, sort of like uh, modern or, you know, because those words have judgment connotations. Primitive sounds like it's somehow inferior and modern, you know, or whatever you would use to to describe the more highly evolved uh, species sounds like there's a value judgment there. And so Eric Hallamran, an ichthyologist at Virginia Tech, taught me this. We use the terms ancestral and derived. And that just sort of puts you along the evolutionary timeline, right? So there may be ancestral organisms like some insect that, you know, is actually really highly valued because it's successful. It's been around forever. It does really great in its niche. And it doesn't need a changer. Like I think of sharks, right? Sharks haven't evolved in millions of years because they sort of figured it out. I would say I would value that. I would judge that to be a good thing, right? Even though it is a more ancestral species versus, you know, I I use the example of like a silverback gorilla. They're a very derived biological organism, but this whole thing with violence and um, as a, as a management tool, I think is, is a very weak. um, And and I would say argue a very old and outdated strategy. So they're derived, but you know, maybe more primitive. Anyway, let's not judge, you know, we treat all species the same, but so what we end up with is sexual reproduction, dominating biology in response to, or creating a better capacity to respond to change. So that becomes the way, in the words of the Mandalorian. Now, what's really interesting about this and what I'll talk about in the next episode is how this changed us as individuals. So now that, I mean, for example, asexual, I mean, the first thing you think of is genderless, right? All the biology prior to sexual reproduction, there was no gender. There were no male-female. It was all the same. Or maybe there was, but there was no purpose for that. There was no sexual dimorphism. They didn't look different. (laughs) They all looked the same. With the onset of sexual reproduction, now you have an individual here, and you can think of this as like a paramecium or an individual cell, not as like a sophisticated or more derived organism. I can't do anything to make more of myself unless I find a buddy. I got to find a buddy. 
I got to find somebody with the other stuff. Um, and briefly, early on, organisms would have, would create, and plants do this, and some or animals do this, I think. I have to check that. Produce both sperm and egg, or both pollen and ova. But they don't fertilize themselves. <laughs> right? Organisms can be hermaphroditic and produce both parts, but they still need to find a partner. And this is a, a, a clue that supports the idea that we're trying to create variation. You know, we don't want to reproduce with ourselves. It defeats the purpose. If we're going to reproduce with ourselves, why not just clone? So that, there are th- that was sort of like an evolutionary step, I think. And then eventually we ended up with organisms that would only produce male gametes or female gametes. But the point is, all of the sophisticated changes that had to occur related to sex. And that's what we'll talk about next time. So this is an introduction. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. I'm Chris Bercher. This is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. This has been episode 117. Let's talk about sex, part one. Take it easy.